much for this. We thank you so much for all that you've done for us, Lord. We thank you for the weekend. We thank you for our families and our friends, and uh, we thank you for the opportunities that you give us to come here and to be with each other and to worship together, to sing together. Lord, be with Ben as he delivers your word this morning and as we continue to talk through uh, Genesis, Lord. We thank you so much for for loving us, Lord. We thank you so much for your plan for us uh, and help us to to use that plan and, and use our knowledge and love for you to uh, to spread that to others and uh, to see the joy that it is to, to live in you and to love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. I kept texting Tanner this week. I was like, hey, will you do this also? Hey, will you teach Sunday school? Hey, will you lead worship? Uh, hey, will you appreciate you, brother? We're going to be in Genesis 39 this morning, marching our way faithfully through uh, this book of the Bible. There's a, a phrase that, that often gets used in Christian life that I really want to kind of highlight as we walk through this passage because I think it, it shares with us a truth that we sometimes overlook because sometimes with these phrases that we say all the time, that we hang up on our walls, we kind of write our own meaning into those and we miss kind of what the Bible tells us. So the phrase I want us to look at while we walk through Genesis 39 is that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, which is absolutely true. But one of the things we do with that is sometimes with, with that phrase and others is we'll take that and, and we make it mean whatever we want it to mean. Right? God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, so I'm going to go do this or I'm going to go do that or I'm going to justify this or I'm going to justify that. And so when times are good, a phrase like that reminds us that it's God who's giving us those good things. And when times are bad, it often reminds us that God is not absent in those negative things, but rather is, is sending us through those for our edification, for our sanctification, so that we can evangelize those who are around us in those things. But I think if we'll look at that phrase in light of Genesis 39, what we'll end up finding out is there's something much deeper in, <laughs> something much deeper uh, something much more true than kind of just that spiritual caffeine that those phrases are that get us through whatever day we're on into the next day. So Genesis 39 is where we'll be. I want to pray, and then we will dive in. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we do get to gather together. Um, God, I thank you for our church here in Ira. I pray that you would help us to be open to your word that it would speak to our hearts, it would soften us where we need softened, it would encourage us where we need encouragement, it would convict us where we need conviction, and it would be our guiding force, our authority. Help us to live in light of your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard, an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight, and att- uh, in his sight, and attended him, and he made him an overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had. From that time, he made him an overseer in the house of all that he had, and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. 
And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Let's think about that in light of Joseph's life. It makes sense for us to think of Joseph in those terms, especially early on in his life. Remember, he comes from a prominent family. His great-grandpa is Abraham, Father Abraham, who had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and Joseph is one of them. His grandpa is Isaac, the Isaac who was placed on the altar that Abraham was going to sacrifice, that God miraculously provided the, the ram for. His dad is Jacob, the scoundrel who wrestled with God. And now we have Joseph. So when we say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for Joseph, that's his dad, grandpa, and great-grandpa. He comes from this extremely noble family, but on top of that, he's the golden child of his family. We're told that Jacob loved Joseph more than the other ones. He was one of the youngest, but he was Rachel, the favorite wife's oldest son. And so Joseph was doted upon by his dad. He was baby. Jacob was a, Joseph was a tattletale at the beginning. And Jacob loved it. He loved it so much that he puts a garment on Joseph that's like a king's garment. It's not meant to be gotten dirty. It's meant for a ruler to wear. And then he gives him over his older, he gives him authority over his older brothers to watch and see how they're working. And if they're not working well, to report it back to him. He was the supervisor. Fancy coat, youngest. I mean, even God gives Joseph two dreams that are just these dreams of grandeur. The sun, the moon, and the stars are going to bow down to Joseph. Man, God loves you. It has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Until his brothers want to contemplate murdering him and then throw him into a pit and eventually sell him into slavery. And not just to anybody, but they sell him to the Ishmaelites who are their grandpa's brother's backwoods family. They're the Borden County of the Middle East. Where's God's love and his wonderful plan for Joseph when he's in the pit? Where's God's love and his wonderful plan for Joseph's life when he's a slave now, being marched south towards Egypt? Where's God's love and his wonderful plan for Joseph when he's sold by the Ishmaelites to Potiphar, an Egyptian captain of the guard? Well, verse verse 2 tells us where God is. He was with Joseph. None of this is an accident. None of this is a surprise to God. God's love and his wonderful plan for Joseph's life included being cast into a pit by his brother, sold into slavery, and ending up as a slave in Potiphar's house. See, part of God's love and his wonderful plan for Joseph's life is is important for Joseph to see that it's not about him. Joseph becomes successful as a slave, and Potiphar's house thrives, and Potiphar understands it's doing well because the Lord is with Joseph. And so Potiphar places this slave now, starts at the bottom, and then he quickly rises to the top and is this kind of overseer over the house. But think of what happens with Joseph as he's there. He's living this life. Potiphar knows that he's a servant of Yahweh, of Elohim, of God, the God of the Bible. And Potiphar is an Egyptian a pagan. I mean, Joseph gets to be a gospel light to Potiphar. 
never would have happened had he not been cast into a pit. And, and it tells us that Potiphar was so trusting of Joseph that, that he trusted him with everything. The only thing Potiphar doesn't have to worry about or has to worry about is what he's going to eat. What a life to live. But Joseph is a slave, he's not a son. Yet God uses Joseph in such a way that it becomes apparent to these pagan Egyptians that Joseph, but more importantly, Joseph's God is not somebody to be messed with, that Joseph's God was to be worshipped. Joseph's God is the real deal, and he loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. This is a point that I, we need to hit on before we move on to the next thing, that maybe, just maybe, when something doesn't go according to our plan, when something doesn't go the way that we want it to go, though we're in a hard time or we end up in a place that we didn't think we would ever be or whatever it is, that maybe, just maybe, what the Lord is doing is he's taking you and he's moving you to a spot where you will be a gospel light for people that would never hear the gospel had you not been there. Maybe the hard time, the hard circumstance, whatever it is that is shoving you into those places is not to sanctify you, but for you to evangelize others. Maybe just maybe God is placing you around certain people so that they can see you and they can see the God that you worship because the gospel and God's plan will not be defeated. So maybe just maybe inflation or fear or sickness are God's way of placing us around people whom we would never come in contact with without those things. I heard the story of a lady who was speaking at a women's conference somewhere, I can't remember, and her flight got messed up. And so she's at the, the little table booth thing trying to figure out what's going on and how she can get there, and it becomes apparent that there's no way that she can get on the plane and get to where she's supposed to speak by the time she's supposed to be there. So, so she's frustrating, and she's talking to the, the airline worker, and finally the airline worker says, well, why don't you just tell me what you are going to speak about? And so she begins sharing this, this story that she's supposed to speak in front of hundreds of thousands of, of women at this conference, and now it's just her and this one airline working lady. And if I remember the story right, the airline working lady just bursts into tears. She heard the gospel proclaimed. God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life, even when the plan isn't going like you think it should. Verse 7. And after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, behold, because of, my, uh, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day she went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. 
So God loves us. He has a wonderful plan for our life and how true that has ended up for Joseph in nearly every circumstance he finds himself in. He ends up moving his way up in whatever hierarchical structure we want to talk through. And even though there's some, some bumps in the road and some rough parts that happen in his life, he ends up being blessed by God. He shares the gospel with lost pagans. He's, he's doing pretty good in his life until he isn't. I, listen, we believe the Bible is inerrant, it's infallible, it's authoritative for our life. What the Bible says is true. How lucky is it for Joseph that the Bible tells us he's handsome? Like, that's recorded in Scripture. Joseph was easy on the eyes, is the uh, message translation, I think. And I really think it's funny that the text says nothing about Potiphar's wife's appearance. She's okay, but Joseph is a good-looking dude. And so she sees Joseph just like Eve saw the fruit. And she seeks to take Joseph, and he refuses. And this isn't a one-time thing about Potiphar's life. It says day after day that she kept trying to seduce Joseph. She kept trying to take Joseph. She is, it's this desire is not a desire out of love. It's a desire out of lust. She's commanding him. Think about this. She's his superior. She's the wife of Potiphar. And when the way she talks to him is not, hey, let's come and build this little family. Let's build this little nest together. This is a complete lust, and it's a complete command. And he is a, a slave, granted a high-up slave, but nonetheless a slave. And she is the slave owner's wife. And she is commanding him to sleep with her as if she were saying, sweep the floors, clean the blinds, mow the yard, do the laundry, load the dishwasher." She's saying, do you know who I am, Joseph? You better obey. And Joseph's response is is phenomenal for us. He says, you're the wife of another man. And it's important for us to see how Joseph rebukes this. Look look, look at verse 9. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph does not say it would be a sin against Potiphar to sleep with you. He says it's a sin against God. Now, certainly it would be a sin against Potiphar, but the main relationship that we was concerned with was with the Lord. See, Joseph reveals where his heart is at. His heart longs to please God, not man, and this is key for us. Because we ask the question, what is it in the face of temptation over and over and over again by a young, unmarried male that's able to resist this authoritative woman in his life over and over again? A temptation that would have been strong for him. A temptation that he easily could have justified. He easily could have said, well, I'm not married. She's not wanting to do anything more than just a physical act. What harm could come from this? He could have justified succumbing to this temptation for self-preservation. God, I don't don't want to do this, but if I don't do this, then I lose everything. And you have raised me up in this house, and I want to be a gospel witness for this family. It would be a shame for me to lose that because I won't do this one thing. God, I know you love me. I know you have a wonderful plan for me. So I'm going to sin, not by my choice, because it makes the most sense for my career to do so. 
I'll lose my job as a noble slave or Potiphar's house if I don't do this. God, it was uncomfortable in the pit. It was scary and miserable, miserable being sold as a slave and marched to places where, God, I didn't have the freedom to worship you. I don't want to give up that, that freedom to worship you now, so I need to, to come to this. It was scary being sold to Potiphar when I didn't know him. And you've blessed me through all of that, and certainly you don't want me to lose this. So the only way that I can keep this peace, keep this comfort, keep this lifestyle, keep this career, keep this family unit that you have given me is to choose sin. I mean, God, why would you present this with me if it wasn't okay for me to do? Who knows, God? Maybe it's your plan. I have this close relationship with Potiphar's wife, and maybe she'll end up getting saved from this. Maybe her husband will get saved too. We can justify it. Joseph could have justified it from a logical standpoint, from a career standpoint, from a comfort standpoint. It would have been so easy for Joseph to do that. And honestly, we do this all the time. We justify sin because it's little. So what if I was speeding? You know, the Bible says in Romans that if the government's laws are not directly keeping you from worshiping God or, or a direct threat to the Bible, that, that you're not sinning against the United States. If we break a law, you're sinning against the Lord. But, I mean, speeding isn't that big of a deal, right? I don't, when I think of speeding, I don't think of rebelling against God Almighty. I think of I'm trying to gain some time on my trip. I'm trying to get somewhere quicker. God, if I drive 80 instead of 75 through my whole course of my life, think how much extra time I'll have to share the gospel with lost people. I mean, it's a harmless sin, right? Who's being hindered at 80 miles an hour? Or maybe you don't look down on people for, maybe you don't speed, but maybe you look down on people for speeding. Those heathen sinners, I'm glad that I'm more holy than they are. See, temptations are hard because we're really good at rebelling against God. We can obey and disobey at the exact same time. And so in our minds, and we can reason uh, in our minds, our, our experiences, our emotions are absolutely affected by the fall and affected by sin. And so we can be tempted to think that we're pleasing God by disobeying God's laws, and we can sin by looking down on others because they disobey God's laws. Right, this is the reason I assume we don't gather together when we sit and that we spread out is because you're afraid God might lightning strike some other people and you want to be far enough away from them because God's almighty and all-powerful, but lightning's a little bit unpredictable. The reality is God's law reveals God's character. God's law is not separate from God. It's not like God wrote the law and he's like, okay, now I'm past that, let's do this. God's law is revealing who God is to us. Much like God's grace and God's mercy is not separate from who God is. God is the goal, not a means to an end. And so Joseph shows us the way to battle temptation that works and that's biblical. And what Joseph doesn't do is he doesn't white-knuckle the struggle just to please God, just holding on, hoping that his grip doesn't slip away and that the temptation doesn't last long. And he doesn't obey with a cold heart, knowing that if I, if I skip this temptation, if I don't succumb to this temptation, then God has to bless me, God has to accept me, God has to, to love me. So I obey to earn God's approval or I obey to earn God's love. Or sometimes we think that if I obey God and I do these things, and God's like this cosmic vending machine, and if I obey, I get a quarter, and I can put the quarter in the machine, God. I can push the button, and it dispenses whatever I want out the bottom of it. 
but inflation hits that vending machine too, and it's awfully expensive to keep that. The reality is none of that is biblical obedience. We obey God because God loves us and he has a wonderful plan for our life. And that involves us being sanctified by God, not mummified in our current state. We are saved by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for the glory of God. We are accepted not because of our ability to obey God or resist temptation. We are accepted because God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. We're accepted because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, because the grace and the mercy of God. We bring nothing to the table. So when we obey out of a heart that's already accepted by God, it's no longer as tempting. The sin loses its power. We know that Jesus is better. And so we resist because our hearts aim to please God as an overflow of the gospel love that he's already displayed for us. And so we can pass those temptations. We can walk around. We can cut through the the, the, the justifications that we make in our life to do sin as opposed to just saying, well, God, anything can happen from this. We obey the word of God because it is God's word. Over and over, Potiphar's wife tempts Joseph. Her name's not told to us. Did you ever realize that? It's just Potiphar's wife. And he resists because of his desire to please God and because God's love in him. Until finally one day, Potiphar's wife gets him alone in the house with no one else around. And she makes her move. And she grabs Joseph's garment and Joseph turns and runs. He drops his coat and he runs. Potiphar's wife is physically trying to pull Joseph in. And so his only option is to flee temptation. And he does. And this is biblically the right thing for Joseph to do, although it initially has negative consequences. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Verse 13. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then he laid up his garment by her until his, her master, his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard these words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. So now we see how Potiphar's wife rejects to, reacts to being rejected. She looks and she sees that she has Joseph's garment in her hand. He's clearly not going to give her what she wants, no matter how much she begs or grabs or literally tries to pull him in. And so she lies to get him killed. She calls to the men of the house. She lies to them. She says, Joseph tried to sleep with me, but I, uh, when he tried to make a move, I screamed. And uh, Did you guys hear me? Because I screamed really loud. And when I screamed, he took off running away because only the guilty run. The innocent don't run. And here's my proof. I have his garment. Twice in Joseph's life, a garment that he's left behind has been used to fabricate a lie about him. 
the punishment for this kind of sin that Joseph is being accused of is not prison, it's murder. It's, it's, uh, the fire, it's, it's, stone, it's being hung, it's being killed. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. I wonder if that's what Joseph was thinking at this point. It would have been so easy to give in to sin. But he didn't. And now look, he's left running away from Potiphar's wife, being accused of things that he was running away from. Potiphar hears the story. His anger is is kindled, but he must have had a hunch that Joseph was innocent and that his wife was not. Because instead of being put to death, he's imprisoned. There's two times in Joseph's life when he was about to be killed and instead he was sold into slavery or imprisonment. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And he's placed in the prison where the king's prisoners were placed. See, the love of God and the wonderful plan for Joseph's life doesn't look and feel like what he wants it to be or all of his desires at this point. He finally had begun to understand that maybe part of God's purpose of his brother selling him into slavery was to be a gospel witness to the Egyptians. And he was blessed and he was favored by God in all of this. He obeyed God. He resisted the temptations in his life. And now he ends up back in another prison at the bottom of the barrel yet again. And he did nothing wrong. It was another lie that sent him here. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was uh, the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So where is God in the midst of all of this? We get an identical phrase that we saw earlier in this chapter. chapter. The Lord was with Joseph even in prison. None of this is an accident. None of this is by mistake. God was not surprised by this. Actually, it was God behind the scenes working these things for his glory and for his wonderful plan. So God does love you. God does have a wonderful plan for your life, but it is his plan, not yours. God sees the whole picture that you and I do not see. And so oftentimes, especially in our lives in Ira, Texas, we will do things and we will probably at some point, we will all die at some point and just fade off into a distant memory. Because it's not about us getting the glory. It's not about us doing things that make us famous or feel good or that help remember our legacy or our memory. God sees the whole picture. We don't. And so God shows his steadfast love to Joseph and to to us. The idea of steadfast love is a love that does not leave. An unleaving love that is constant, that is consistent, that doesn't stop even when we're in prison like Joseph. 
And we see that, that because of this steadfast love, this blessing, this plan that God is working in the background, that, that Joseph, yet again in his life, is seen as someone trustworthy. And so as a prisoner, he's now promoted to like warden. What a weird jump to make. But the Lord saw that everything that Joseph did succeeded because God loves us. He has a wonderful plan for our life. So when we read the story of Joseph, if we're not careful, we can get so wrapped up in Joseph that we miss God. Because the story is not primarily about Joseph. The story is about God. When we look at the story of Joseph, we ought to be reminded that Jesus is a better Joseph. One of the neat things, if you want to do it, the Gospel of Matthew, the way that the Gospel of Matthew is written parallels the story of Joseph in Egypt. You have a brother who's betrayed by his other brothers and sold into a pit and has to die so that he can rescue his brothers. See, Jesus is our brother. And he's God. And just like Joseph resisted temptation, what we know is Jesus, our brother, who was, uh, had the same temptations, we have never gave in to them. Instead, he overcame those temptations, not only giving us an example to follow, but giving us the gospel power to obey his example. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a pride priest who is unable to sympathize with our, with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, prosperity gospel preachers will get a hold of passages like this, and then they will say, if you will act more like Joseph, if you will be good, if you will do the right things, if you'll tithe a certain amount, if you will give to my private jet fund, then God will bless you and raise you up in whatever circumstance of life that you have, whatever situation you're in, so that your wallet gets fatter, your health gets better, and your overall trajectory of life is skyrocketing up. Because God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. But the truth is God does love you and he does have a wonderful plan for your life. But that love and that plan are not for you to be great. But for Christ to be made great in you. God loves you so much that he will not leave you unchanged. In your natural unchanged state, in my natural unchanged state, what we're doomed for is hell. If God loves us and doesn't change us from that state, then that's not a good love, is it? Unchanged means we stay on that path. And on that path, our lives are filled with selfishness, with pride, with arrogance, with a lack of a genuine heart desire for the Lord. See, God's love is not acceptance of who you are. It's changing you from the inside out into who he wants you to be. God's love is giving you a new heart, a new life. God's love is dying the death that you and I deserve, bearing the wrath that you and I deserve, and counting you and I righteous even though we're not. God's love is Jesus in my place. It's the gospel. God's wonderful plan for your life is not about comfort. It's not about peace with the world. It's not about happiness in what we do. It's not about ease of life or having everything that our heart desires or being perfectly healthy or having a growing wealth or being able to retire comfortably. God's plan for your life is about death and resurrection. Dying to yourself daily, repenting of your sin, turning to Jesus, and glorifying him over and over and over again, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. God's plan, God's love for us is the gospel. 
So if we're going to be a gospel-centered church, then this means that each one of us, each member of our church, needs to see that living out this gospel wherever the Lord has placed us Monday through Saturday matters. And it means that in times when we're tired, when they start a softball game at 2 in the morning, that the Lord is not absent from that. That he's placing you there. Around people who need a gospel light in their lives. And this means so much more than just being nice to people. How you act as believers is, is vital. It is important. But the gospel is news. And news must be proclaimed. There's a phrase that makes its way around Christian circles. that sounds great until we think about it. The phrase is, preach the gospel and when necessary use words. The idea I get, the idea is we should live lives that glorify God and draw people to Christ by our actions. But here's the problem. Paul, Romans 10, 14 through 17. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet are those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says... The Lord who has believed has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So saying preach the gospel and when necessary use words is like saying feed the hungry and when necessary use food. It doesn't make sense. Now our lives should be exemplary in the gospel, but our actions and our words are not separate from one another. They're together. So maybe we hear a passage like this. We pair it up with the phrase, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, which is true, but we can see that that there's something much deeper to that than just God wants you to have whatever you want in life. And so maybe, maybe for us this morning, there's some who hear this passage and are wrestling with the idea of if we're really saved by the Lord or not. And the temptation I see often is this struggle with working to to please God, feeling like you've you've done so many wrongs in the past or you've done so many other things in the past or you feel so good about yourself or so high about yourself that you feel like you, you can work your way up to the Lord, that you can obey God and God will give you a life of ease and of comfort. But that's not the gospel. What's keeping you from repenting and turning to Jesus today? The gospel is not about getting things from God. It's about being made right with God. God is the goal of the gospel. So maybe for you, this is hearing this passage that the Lord is calling to you for salvation. That the Lord is doing something in you right now. What is keeping you from repenting, from turning to Jesus in faith today and being baptized? Maybe for you it's not salvation. Maybe it's just you've been running from God angry because your life isn't what you think it should be. Politics, inflation, work, family, whatever it is gets you upset, it gets you stressed, it gets you angry. And so you just get over all of it. And maybe what the Lord is doing with this, this passage is revealing to you that God has you where you're at around the people that you're around for a purpose and for a reason, and it's not an accident. That you are a gospel light to unbelievers and to believers alike. And that God is not done with you. 
the Lord's done with you, you will know because you will be dead. So if you're breathing, if you're alive, the Lord is not done with you yet. And he will not leave you. You will not be forgotten. There's a steadfast love that comes with the gospel that is unending, that is never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God. It's a love that doesn't accept you for who you are. It's a love that changes you into a person who looks more and more like Jesus with each passing day. Maybe the gospel is doing something different in you. But whatever it is, the word has been proclaimed. Don't harden your hearts. Repent and turn to Jesus in faith. There is grace and there is mercy and there is a steadfast love in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. God, thank you for stories like Joseph and Potiphar's wife, which is such a a familiar story because it's one we use when we're little kids or to teach little kids all the time. And God, as much as it is a lesson for them, God, it's also a lesson for us as adults. Whatever circumstance you put us through, help us to be able to say we're your servant. We obey you. And if that gives us a raise, then great. And if that causes us to fall into poverty, praise you too. Help us to be people who are gospel lights in your world. God, I pray for for us who are here. It's no accident that you have us here who are here. That's not beyond you either. You're not surprised. Help the gospel to grow in our hearts this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Tanner will lead us in worship.